The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. On a chilly Tuesday morning, fall has come. So, um, so this, I have two talks that I can't, I can't decide which one I'm going to go with because I'm going to give one today and one next week. So I think I'm going to start, I'm going to start with one, with this one. <clears throat> and I'm going to talk about uh, meditation and how the art and science of meditation and how we develop meditation, a meditation practice through um, various stages. Um, <clears throat> and even for people who've been meditating for a long time, uh, we do all this, but sometimes we don't pay attention to what, what's actually, the process that's actually happening. So <clears throat> today there's a lot of attention uh, that's given to uh, meditation and all the benefits that come with meditation, um, its positive effect on our uh, psychological and emotional and social well-being. And those things are all important and great. So there's a lot of um, what we might call secular mindfulness. And, and there's totally a place for that. Any, any degree of mindfulness, I think, is a benefit for people. But at the same time, there's really not a lot of detailed information about how the mind actually works and what's going on when, when we undertake a meditation practice. So there's a lot of um, uh, direction and prompts for what to do when we meditate. But uh, learning what mindfulness actually is and the power of mindfulness can take a long time of practice to begin to see what's actually happening and how the mind is actually working. And sometimes these things in um, certain settings aren't uh, discussed so clearly. Maybe that's presumptuous of me, but that seems to be my experience. So some of us are more experienced and seasoned meditators, and that might only mean that we've been meditating for a longer period of time. It doesn't mean that we're better meditators or worse meditators. Uh, and others are newer to meditation. And whether we're experienced and we consider ourselves seasoned or whether we're new, most of us would admit, I think, if I asked, yes, I will ask this question, um, <clears throat> do you think that it's easy to um, establish a daily meditation practice? What do you, th what do you think? No. No. <laughs> Raise your hands, please. I want everyone to look around the room. <laughs> it's... Four days a week is pretty darn good, yeah. So even though we think we would like to do it, um, it's really not such an easy thing to, to pull off. So meditation is both an art and a science. 
and I want to talk a little bit about that. So today, uh, there's a lot of research that suggests that a sitting practice, establishing a, a daily sitting practice, is good for us um, on many different levels. You know, it gives us um, a sense of uh, stability in a way. It gives us uh, a, a sense of uh, perspective and clarity that we might not otherwise have. And people mention that sometimes just sitting for a few minutes in the morning, even as short a time as five or ten minutes, can have a big effect on <clears throat> the way that they begin their day and, and, and how the day unfolds for them. So <clears throat> researchers have, have um, told us that when we meditate, uh, our blood pressure goes down. Isn't that nice <laughs> to know that your blood pressure goes down? And um, that it enhances our ability to concentrate and to focus, and it makes us more effective at work, and it makes us more effective leaders, if we happen to be in leadership roles, it, it allows us to sleep more deeply and more easily. Um, it's being used to treat depression. Mindfulness is being used to pr treat depression, obsessive compulsive disorders, PTSD, chronic and acute pain, and the list goes on and on. So these are benefits of meditation that increase um, they increase our sort of mental stability and they help us deal with the constant ebb and flow uh, of whatever day, our daily life brings to us. Some, some things are easy and some things are more challenging. Uh, but these are only some of, the, uh, some of the benefits of meditation. These are great benefits, but this is only part of the picture. So as we deepen practice and our understanding begins to uh, grow, we can begin to sometimes access wonderful states of um, uh, uh, mental states that are quite, quite, uh, profound, they're filled with joy and happiness and a lot of pleasure, deep contentment, and a quality of uh, mental stability, which can be profoundly peaceful. So <clears throat> that doesn't come quickly, but if we practice and we just keep at it, every once in a while we'll touch something that feels a little bit like that. And for, for a lot of people, and the, the the experience is just a settling that one that one can begin to recognize as a, a feeling of um, calmness and stability. It allows us to see things with greater clarity when the mind is more stable and quiet than we would if we were in a normal kind of reactive. Um, just reacting to, to whatever is coming along and triggering us. So <clears throat> what, what a lot of people will report is that there's a new kind of uh, resilience 
that they have access to. Have any of you noticed that in your meditation practice? Yes, yeah. There is this new quality of resilience and sometimes it's, it's so subtle that it's easy to miss because it can feel so natural. And <clears throat> But at a certain point <laughs> in time, you know, you could be making your bed or washing your dishes and then suddenly you realize, wow, I'm not, you know, I'm not so reactive as I used to be. I'm not, um, I, I recover a lot more quickly. So <clears throat> when we're triggered by something or disturbed by something, the resilience can show up um, in the fact that the recovery time gets dramatically diminished. So f the time it takes to sort of reestablish a sense of presence and balance within ourselves, that, that, that becomes a, a much shorter time. And we begin to develop an appreciation, a heightened appreciation of our c common humanity and our interconnectedness and how we in fact are all part of something that uh, is quite mysterious and that we literally depend upon one another for not just our, uh, not just for company and entertainment, but, but for survival. So um, what happens is that gradually our, our, our sense of separate self and the kind of ego-driven um, behaviors that are so much a part of most people's lives, our normal uh, life, that begins to loosen a little bit and we begin to have a little bit more room uh, in, our, in the way that we um, think about things and the perspective that we have on things so that um, there's much more appreciation uh, for what's going on, not only in ourselves, but for other people. So we begin to cut other people a little bit more slack, um, understanding that um, people are just like us in so many ways. And uh, some of the ways that people are like us is that we all know what it's like to, to um, be unhappy and to be stressed, and we all know what it's like to not want to be unhappy and to be stressed. So in that way, it doesn't make any difference whether you're a man or a woman or from America or from India, it's, it's all the same. We all want to be happy and we don't want to suffer. So, so this begins to, to dawn on us and sometimes these, these experiences, these meditative experiences um, can, um, we can sometimes fall into them. Sometimes they happen when we least expect it generally when we least expect it, when we stop trying to make things happen. But even experiences that come in meditation that feel um, 
significant. They also come and go, just like uh, other things in our life. And uh, uh, those experiences that are so, um, I'm going to use the word delicious, they also can be challenged and disrupted by the realities of our daily experience, the realities surrounding experiences that we all face, like aging, sickness, loss, and the whole range of difficulties that we encounter as human beings. So we begin to see that we're still subject to uh, the influences of our habits of mind, of our uh, greed and our aversion and our confusion, our lust, our wanting to be, to become, all of the things that... um, our teachers have been talking to us about. So the highest goal of meditation, um, I think, and this is something that I got from my teachers, is a process rather than a destination. It's, it's an awakening that comes out of a profound realization um, uh, Uh, an awakening that's called um, ultimate truth. I I get a little bit uncomfortable when I'm talking about things like ultimate truth, but I'm trying to make a point here. So it's a way that we um, uh, come to attain uh, genuine wisdom. So we're meditating not just to lower our blood pressures, our blood pressure, you see, or to treat our depression, we're, we're meditating to access this genuine wisdom and to literally transform our lives. And in the, in the process of transformation, our blood pressure <laughs> comes, comes down and um, we, can, we begin to notice these wonderful other kinds of benefits. But, um, <clears throat> so, uh, so basically what I want to say is that meditation uh, unfolds for us in a roughly sequential kind of order, uh, though it's not necessarily linear. And um, our individual experiences with meditation, they don't necessarily map to the many different descriptions offered in books and by teachers. So I personally spent some time studying with, a, with my teacher in Burma. And uh, he's an absolutely wonderful uh, meditation master. And he would describe things very, very clearly, not just to me, but to to all of the people that were working with him. My leg has fallen asleep. (laughs) To all the people who who worked with him. And um, people would try really hard to follow the instructions, which were crystal clear. They couldn't have been clearer. But... uh, 
some of us would get ourselves really wound up because our actual experience didn't map to the description that he was offering us about the way meditation unfolded if we were doing a certain kind of a practice. You see? So we'd beat our heads against the wall, trying, trying, trying. And um, <clears throat> and you know, I can't I can't know this for sure. It could have been it could have been a language problem. But instead of like uh, forcing, well, I'll speak personally, instead of forcing myself to to try to follow the the instructions, you know, to the T, um, or in forcing myself to do that, I missed what was actually happening in my mind. I, I didn't see the striving that I had created in my mind. I didn't see the wanting. I didn't see the greed. I didn't see the aversion to the fact that things were other than the way that I thought they were supposed to be and I wanted them to be. And I didn't see the confusion that that created for me, you see? And so even in just seeing my own personal struggle, I, because I kept struggling with it, I kept pushing, I kept doing the same thing over and over again, um, I, I missed an opportunity to have a, an, an insight that would have given me some wisdom. And with that, I would have been able to come back and relax because I realized after the fact that <clears throat> He wasn't telling anyone to strive and struggle. He was giving very clear instructions about relaxing and opening to the experience that could actually um, move one into a, into a place where they could appreciate and experience directly this kind of deep joy and contentment. So, <clears throat> so we... You know, we work hard, but we find that we're still subject to the influences of uh, greed, aversion, delusion, wanting to be, to become, and so on and so forth. And, and those, those things don't go away on their own. They don't go away without being seen. At least that's my experience. And so we, most of us don't want to see that um, because it's uncomfortable. But until we see what's obscuring our ability to connect with ourselves deeply, um, we're slaves. We're literally, we're going to, we're doomed to keep repeating the same kinds of things, just like I told you in my example. He gave great instructions and I thought that this was the way that I had to do it. But it wasn't working and I kept doing it over and over and over again until I suffered enough to finally give up. So <clears throat> hopefully 
people don't have to um, suffer to that level. And I hope that I don't have to, but uh, as much as I used to. But uh, it is something that se people seems to do, or seems to need, seem to need to do. So um, let's start at the beginning. Uh, we clearly can't leapfrog over where we are and where <coughs> we want, over where we are to where we want to be. And we can't really hope to sustain our practice through the sheer force of will, which is the example that I just offered you, because it wasn't sustainable. I could force myself for a while to try to do something, to try to follow a instruction. But if it didn't work, and it wasn't working, and I wasn't acknowledging that it wasn't working, I couldn't sustain that will to, to do that. So <clears throat> the first step is to recognize the importance and the role of our intention. And when our intentions are clear to us and we continuously um, uh, refer back to them and repeat them over and over through many different meditation sessions, um, this actually uh, affects our brain activity. And uh, these repeated mental acts eventually turn into um, uh, new habits of mind. So let's say that you wanted to cultivate a practice of loving kindness and you didn't, you weren't familiar with loving kindness and you start to work with loving kindness and you, you sort of get a little bit of an understanding of what it might be like, but it doesn't really work and you're trying to wish someone well and you're thinking these phrases are boring or <clears throat> whatever people think, <laughs> you see. So, <clears throat> so researchers have um, validated that the mere inclination of the mind towards something like loving kindness or uh, goodwill over time creates new pathways in the brain that allow the meditator or the individual to more easily access that quality in the future rather than the, the reactive uh, ways that uh, we might be under normal circumstances. So um, <clears throat> if, if you were trying to cultivate a quality like compassion or like loving kindness and it wasn't it didn't seem to be working the the mere inclination of the mind in that direction will occupy a part of the brain or activate a part of the brain that will over time create um, a new way of responding to 
whatever happens to be triggering you or whatever you're, is coming up for you. So rather than um, um, defaulting to um, impatience and irritation with someone, you might um, begin to lean towards loving kindness and compassion. And these mind habits are these habits of mind are repeatedly uh, sustained intentions that um, over time become a a kind of a new default response in our brains. Um, So repeated mental actions become new mental habits. It's that simple. So if if you have the intention to meditate and you sit down and you, and you try to meditate on, uh, you're trying to cultivate a daily meditation practice. This is where I started. Um, <clears throat> and you find that it's difficult. It's difficult for everybody, you see? So you can recognize that you're not flawed because it's difficult for you. It's, this isn't like um, proof that you're a bad person. I said something once and someone responded, well, that just proves what a bad person you are. And I said, thanks, that's really helpful. Um, so, um, so to just come back to, even if you just sit down and connect with the intention that you want to cultivate a habit, you're inclining the mind in a direction that will, over time, with practice and, and with some effort on your part, will begin to um, take root for you. So hold the purposeful and conscious intention to sit down and meditate every day. That I, I encourage you to just hold that as an intention. And if you don't sit down and meditate every day, it doesn't it's not the end of the world. It's not going to mean that you're going to be a failure or anything else. It just means that you didn't sit down and meditate that day. But at least try to hold the intention. That you can do. Then it gets a little bit dicier. It's, uh, the suggestion is decide how long you want to meditate. And then when you sit down, don't get up until you've meditated for as long as you've decided to meditate. So if you've decided to meditate for an hour every day, and you sit down, and you find that an hour is not in the cards for you, then you've just like shot yourself in the foot, so to speak. So if, if, if an hour is too much, Meditate for 45 minutes. If 45 minutes is too much, meditate for 20 minutes. If 20 minutes is too much, meditate for 10 minutes. But just find, decide how long you're going to meditate, and then don't get up. Just see what it's like to sit there, you see? So when we come into this Tuesday morning group, we meditate for 35 minutes. And some groups meditate for 45 minutes, and some groups meditate for 40 minutes. (laughs) It gets confusing when you're the teacher because I can't figure out how long each group 
you're supposed to meditate for. But <coughs> so sometimes 35 minutes seems like nothing, and sometimes it's like, is it 45 minutes? Is it 30? <laughs> so decide how long you want to meditate. Um, and be diligent during your meditation practice. So now I, I, I forewarn you that it does get a little bit dicier here. So when you are, you've decided, okay, I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes, don't sit there daydreaming and planning and remembering. Um, and if that happens, know that the mind has just defaulted to old habits. Just know that, you see? The mind will do that. It's not, there's nothing wrong. But when that happens, recognize that, name it. Ah, old habit, daydreaming, planning, fretting, doing my to-do list, so on and so forth. So don't beat yourself up when this happens. Just work on strengthening your motivation and intentions instead. You see? Um, I think it's only fair to say <coughs> here something that you all know, and that is that, um, first of all, it's not easy to meditate every day, and then when we do decide that we're going to meditate, it's not easy to sit down and actually meditate and not just sit there daydreaming and, and uh, you know, okay, now it's time to think. <coughs> and <coughs> to, to then strengthen your motivation by deciding that you are actually going to use the time to try to be with awareness and to try to cultivate a, a quality of mindfulness. So <clears throat> when the mind wanders, as the mind has a tendency to do, um, <clears throat> you can't really power through that. You can't like force your mind to stop wandering. And if you can force it, you can only force it for a little while. It's, it's not sustainable. And that's one of the ways that you can test out um, what, you're, what you're trying to do in your meditation. If you're, you're trying, um, if you're trying to cultivate an awareness of breath, for instance, you're trying to do an anapanasati um, uh, meditation, um, and you're just forcing yourself and you can't sustain it, you know that if something needs to be um, rebalanced. And you can't force yourself to become aware when the mind is wandering. You can't force it, but you can recognize it. You can know it. And there's a difference between knowing the mind that's wandering and trying to force yourself to recognize when the mind begins to wander. So <clears throat> you can notice and focus instead on the moment when you realize that you're no longer with your chosen object. Now we've all heard this instruction a million times, but that's the first moment of renewed mindfulness. So <clears throat> as we're cultivating this, this 
practice. We've now got ourselves to the cushion. We're now trying to meditate and we're trying to pay attention to what's actually going on and the mind wanders away and we lose our object if we're, we're working with the breath. You see, <clears throat> when we wake up at some point and notice that, we have, that our mind has wandered, what we've actually done is we've remembered our object. We've remembered the breath that we're no longer with. And so that moment when we remember that is really, really important. That's the first moment of renewed mindfulness. And the way that we meet that moment and what we do with it and the attitude that we have around that um, <coughs> is also an opportunity for deeper uh, uh, and brighter mindfulness to occur. Because when we know what attitude we have, we can watch the way we reconnect with the breath. Do we force ourselves back to the breath or do we gently allow the breath to come back to us? You see, there's a number of different ways you can do it. And uh, I've had instructions where when you notice that the mind has wandered, you just gently bring your, your attention back to the breath. And that's fine if you can do that gently. But uh, for a lot of people, especially if they're strivers, they, they'll like, try to grab the breath again. See? So one of the techniques that I use because I happen to be one of those strivers, is <laughs> to simply wait. To simply wait for the breath to show itself again. And that waiting takes a lot of patience and a lot of kindness because it, it's, it, and this I can see with mindfulness, it's going against the grain of my temperament. My temperament is the no, no pain, no gain, method, which is not very effective in meditation. Um, sometimes it's necessary, but in the long run, it's not. It hasn't served me well. So I've tried to cultivate a practice of simply waiting. So we're talking about meditation, but you can, you can um, uh, flip this very thing into your own daily life experience and see how um, your temperament to respond to something in one way or another affects the outcome and the experience that you're actually going to have. So if you notice in meditation something like I just described to you and then you notice in your daily life that when something rubs you in a certain way or something triggers you in a certain way, you have a tendency, temperamentally, to, uh, to let's call it what, it what it really is, to react, to react in a certain way. And as we begin to train the mind, to discipline the mind, to cultivate these qualities in us, we, we begin to see how instead of reacting, we have a choice and we can respond in a way that's more um, skillful and that, and that um, 
brings us more puts puts us in in uh, uh, sync with our with our deeper intentions. That's what I'm trying to say here. So, <clears throat> so gradually we begin to set our intention to focusing our mind. We're back to meditation to focusing our mind on mental objects um, such as uh, thoughts and feelings and emotions. So we begin to experience uh, our meditation in uh, you know a sort of a bigger way and uh, this is a kind of introspective attention and uh, when we we begin to watch our thoughts when we begin to observe let's say to observe our thoughts and our feelings and emotions and see them as processes that are underway are that that are just arising and passing away um, our our mindfulness begins to get clearer and clearer so we begin to see um, uh, that the emotion that we're having is not necessarily who we are it's an emotion that has arisen for us, or that every thought that comes through our mind isn't necessarily true. It's just a mental construct. And then we begin to see the, the process of thinking rather than being sort of entangled in the content of the thoughts. So, <clears throat> so we set our intention to be extra vigilant so that this introspective attention becomes more continuous and we uh, begin to watch carefully and notice and correct any kind of dullness and distraction that might show up in our meditation as soon as possible. So we've sat down, we're cultivating a daily practice, we've being able to identify that minds wander and that we have emotions and feelings that come in and go. But we've learned to recognize those things. And um, in the recognition of all of that that's going on, we can notice and correct other kinds of um, states and feelings that come upon us as meditators and just as human beings, whether we're in meditation or in our daily life. So, but um, we're learning to identify these things for what they are. So we're learning to see, oh, now I'm distracted. <laughs> now I'm moving into dullness and, and lethargy. Now I'm becoming bored. Now, you see, and we begin to, when we begin to see that and, and we're tracking that with a little bit more care, we can uh, sort of do a course correction and we can um, uh, deal with that as soon as possible. So these intentions and habits of, uh, of inclining the mind in this way, they, they actually will mature into bright mindfulness and a stability of mind that can be known directly 
We can know when we've all had experiences where we feel that, um, wow, things are so clear. Why aren't they this clear all the time? And then other times it's like, where is that clarity? <laughs> you see? <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> so as we stick with it, as we start and continue, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that there's two things that we have to do in order to be fully liberated. And I thought, what are those two things? Sign me up. And the two things are start and continue over and over and over again. Start and continue. So um, at this stage of starting and continuing, the meditator can recognize and can really overcome every type of dullness or distraction and sometimes even experience a single-pointed um, attention uh, and focus and an introspective awareness in which the mind can observe its own state and activities. The mind quiets down enough to actually see what's going on in the mind. This was the long, circuitous way to get there, right? <laughs> I, I, I hope it made some sense. But the mind can actually learn to be with itself in this new kind of a way. So <clears throat> this, this gradually becomes easier and easier. And with the continuous intention to be on guard for the kinds of things that just pull us helter and skelter, the mind becomes accustomed to sustaining attention and, and, and sustaining mindfulness. And it becomes uh, sort of natural. It becomes almost effortless, like breathing in and breathing out. You just begin to notice things. It's almost like, um, like this, this awareness that's uh, awareness, this resilience, our awareness of resilience that sort of creeps up on us, and we reckon, oh, I'm I'm more resilient than I used to be. You see, it's the same thing with mindfulness. Uh, you 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 begin to to notice that this quality is. Uh, more and more continuous, and it's less and less effort, or it's more and more effortless. So um, effortless, sustained attention produces mental and physical stability. And these are qualities that, um, that create the conditions for the kind of meditative pleasures and joy and tranquility that I was talking about earlier and um, the, the experience of a, of a feeling of equanimity that can arise in the meditator, in this case in you. And this kind of happiness begins to actually persist between meditation sessions and it carries over into your daily life. So... <clears throat> So it's true that meditation lowers our blood pressure and makes us less likely to be depressed if we 
are depressed or less angry if we're angry. Um, and all of those kinds of wonderful benefits, but it also brings this as well, this deep, deep, deep understanding and happiness that begins to show up and persist. It just becomes part of the way that um, you experience life. And I know that some of us in this room have been meditating for um, a little while, um, and some of us for quite a while. And, uh, and many of us would describe, or I've had many people describe this, this quality of happiness that I'm, I'm pointing to here as being very subtle and very quiet, and it's, it just gradually begins to be the way that you are. It's a very, it's a kind of profound transformation that shows up in, you're the same person, but you're totally different. It's hard to put words to it but I'm seeing people smile, so I'm thinking somebody <laughs> recognizes this be, be, besides just me. It's, it's um, if you've ever been around somebody who's been meditating for a long time, and I suppose this can happen in other ways, but since we're in a meditation center, I'm going to talk about it this way. But if you've ever been around them, you, just no, you begin to notice that they're different. There's a different, the way they are in relationship to themselves and other people is different. So I'll have um, students come and tell me <coughs> things like um, their children will report that since they started practicing compassion meditation, specifically compassion meditation, that <clears throat> they're just a lot easier to get along with. See? And all they're doing is practicing compassion meditation. But they're changing, and people around them are noticing that they're changing, and when they get the feedback from people around them, they begin to notice that, in fact, they are changing, and that this feels pretty darn good. So this happiness begins to show up in between our meditation experiences. In other words, <clears throat> it's not just that we sit down on the cushion for 30 minutes and touch a moment of happiness. Uh, that's nice, but that doesn't last. And, and what, if the happiness that we find on the cushion doesn't translate into our daily life. It's not very sustainable or of much use. So you begin to see, oh, these practices actually do affect the quality of our lives, of my life. So we can begin to cultivate these uh, these these qualities and these intentions to, to actually pay attention and develop these things uh, with regular practice. And we can protect them from the kinds of things and distractions that would um, 
um, take us away and uh, or lead us in a in a more habitual way that that we're not noticing anymore, or um, we can uh, pay the kind of attention to our own experience that recognizes um, that hindrances are coming up and we can protect ourselves from the hindrances and our distractions and the ways that we procrastinate, the ways that doubt and desire and aversion and agitation and anxiety impact us. And we don't let impatience um, or frustration stop us from practicing, you see? So even if we miss a day or we miss two days or we miss a week or we miss a month, just go back to your intention and start again. Start and continue over and over and over again. So trust in the process. Be patient. Care for your mind like it's really important because it is. Care for your mind like a skilled gardener would care for his garden or her garden. And you will see that your intentions will flower and fruit in due course. So those are my thoughts for this morning. And we have a few minutes left if anyone wants to ask a question or make a comment. And next week I will talk about meditation as the path to freedom. Sandy, right? Yes. What, um, is there a difference between meditating and praying? Um, yes, there is. Um, <clears throat> And, and since, since, since I meditate and I don't, nest, don't normally pray, can I ask you what you think of as prayer? How you would describe prayer? Well, I um, grew up in a Baptist Christian church. Mm -hmm. And so we uh, prayed. Mm -hmm. And I used to go to church... Um, every day, mm. all day long. Mm -hmm. My father was really religious. Mm -hmm. And so then I started practicing meditation about five years ago mm -hmm. um, when I had a stroke. And so I'm a little bit confused as to the difference because I, I, I do all the things that you said mm -hmm. in meditating and I meditate in mm -hmm. the morning and at night and all day long. Mm. <laughs> and I, I uh, don't drive, I walk. And so I do walking meditation. Mm. But um, it's, nice. it, and it's interesting that you, you uh, talked about this today because in walking up here, I was thinking, I, I was praying, and, I, mm. and now I'm confused as to the difference. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, Okay, so, so as I said, I, I don't pray necessarily, but when I was a child, I was raised as a Christian as well. And, and 
as a child, when I was taught to pray, um, I, I was actually sent to a parochial school with nuns who taught me. And the prayer was always um, sort of um, an asking for something, uh, asking God for one thing or another, you see? <coughs> and <coughs> and uh, it wasn't so much a reflection on what, uh, or a contemplation on what was going on within myself. So I wasn't looking at my mind and the way that my mind works and uh, the conditions in which certain things arise and, and uh, disappear. I, I, was, I was specifically asking in my prayer as a child, as, as a child might pray for, you know, the kids at school to like me or whatever the prayer happens to be for the child. I wasn't looking at what I was doing to be likable or unlikable. So in meditation, I would just be, I learned to be quiet enough with myself to begin to see into not just my behavior and my actions, but my motivations and my intentions and, and then more and more subtle things. So uh, that's, maybe people can pray um, in that way. I never learned how, so I can't really answer your specific question question without knowing how you think about prayer. You see, with meditation, um, I'm looking, or we look at um, our minds and how our minds work. So meditation, because I, I, I also teach in a secular environment, meditation, in a secular environment, yeah. And... Um, and a lot of people wouldn't necessarily um, go to that environment if they thought it was something spiritual. So I describe meditation as mental discipline. We're learning how to discipline the mind, and it is mental discipline, you see. And I don't associate prayer with that. I, I associate prayer with a with a feeling of heart. Prayer is wonderful. Prayer. When you do the Brahma Vihara practices, the loving kindness practices, and that that can feel a little bit like a prayer. Yeah. So they're, they're very similar. They're very similar, but they're, they are different. Please. <coughs> well, in response to that, there's this practice that's cropped up in the past 40 years mm -hmm. in Catholic, Anglican, and Greek Orthodox circles called centering prayer, which is really a lot like Vipassana meditation. Mm -hmm. And they even have, you know, the bowl, ring the bowl once at the beginning and three times at the end. And it seems to have been 
very influenced by this practice. So uh -huh. so, somebody is working on this intersection. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, there's. It's not like I'm saying. Yeah. Our, it's not like meditation is is better than prayer. It's just different. You yeah. see. I mean, you sit in silence. I mean, there's there's no verbal. It's non. It's completely nonverbal personal reflection. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really the one to ask, you wouldn't know that, but um, because as a, as a child, I was also very um, devout in that, but there was a lot of, like, desperation in my prayers, you see. And I'm sure that if I had remained in that tradition, that I, that I would have had a maturing and a deeper understanding of how to engage in prayer and what the power of prayer is. So I totally honor it completely. I'll give you a, 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 a simple example of how I came to respect this. I, I mean, I came to respect it in a number of ways, but I was teaching a compassion course, and um, I was in a Christian church it was being offered in a Christian church, in an Episcopal church. And um, I, was, I was teaching the, the loving-kindness practice, and a woman raised her hand and, and basically said uh, <clears throat> that she thought that it was arrogant that we could, we would assume that we could give someone this kind of love this kind of unconditional love. And I said, really? Oh, that's interesting. <clears throat> I said, well, when you think of a, of a person that you care about um, and you wish them well, what do you do? And she said, well, I pray to Jesus for them. And I said, well, when you pray to Jesus, what, is, what do you pray? And or she said, I put them in Jesus' hand. This is what she said. I, put, I put, put my loved one in Jesus' hand. And then I said, and when, when you do that, then what is your prayer? And she said, my prayer is that God's will be done for them. And I realized in that moment that for her, then I said, how does that make you feel? And she said, well, it makes me feel wonderful. <laughs> and I realized that in her mind, this was the highest wish that she could have, which of for the welfare and happiness of her loved one. And that wish evoked this feeling of, this wonderful feeling, which is the feeling of loving kindness. And I said, that's it, you got it. There's many roads to Rome, you just came in through that one. You see, and that, and so that's it. The Dalai Lama says if, if you're a Christian, you can meditate and be a better Christian. And if you're a Jew, you can meditate and be a better Jew. And it, you, see, you don't have to become a Buddhist, but meditation can serve. We're a little bit over time, so anybody that needs to leave, please feel free to, and I'll stick around if you have a question. Thank you all for your kind attention, and we'll continue this theme next week.